Our scripture reading is from that psalm that we have sung, 130. The psalmist who waits upon the Lord and his great redemption. Before we read God's word, shall we ask for his blessing as we read it and hear it preached. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking for your spirit, that you would send your spirit in rich measure this morning, that as we have now opportunity to turn to your word, that you would truly speak to us, that we would hear the voice of the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And Father, we pray that as we sing this psalm together, live this psalm together, uh, that you would, you would show us a, again in fresh and new ways the, the great redemption that you've provided for us in Christ. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Well, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, this unnamed psalmist is a lot like you and me. He's a pilgrim making his way to the temple. He's going to meet with God in the assembly of the Old Testament church in Jerusalem. He's he's going to church, and we know that because this is a psalm of ascents. It's one of the, the 15 psalms that were gathered together, collected to form a hymn book of sorts for the pilgrims to sing as they made their way to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals and the feasts. And because it was a long journey, in order to reach the city, they had a hymn book to sing as they were going. It reminded them of what they were doing, what what they were going to Jerusalem to do, what they they were called to do as God's people. And the purpose of of the Psalms of Ascents are to prepare the heart for worship, to recall to mind what took place at the temple and who it was and who, who, who it was that they were going to meet. And perhaps you and your family are in the habit of reading a psalm of ascents before you go to church. My heart was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord, Psalm 122. Your mind is being shaped, it's being prepared to, to enter joyfully into the house of the Lord for the celebration that church is intended to be. Uh, The author of Hebrews would say that in chapter 12 that we have come to Mount Zion, uh, the the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels gathering and and festal gathering, 
to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God who is the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new and better covenant. That's what church is. It's an assembly of God's people gathering to worship, to celebrate the triune God who has redeemed us in Christ, who who has made us by his spirit a living temple in, in which his spirit abides. That's what the Psalms of Ascent, they they foreshadow. That's what the pilgrims long to be a part of, the body, the body of believers. And he commences his journey with this purpose to join God's people in festival and celebration. But yet you read Psalm 130, it's not a joyful and eager pilgrim. It's a melancholy, it's a bluesy psalm of deep sadness and sorrow. The music of the Psalter is written to capture the heartbeat of the soul, and, and this believer is not eager. He's, he's not looking forward the same expectation and excitement and joy. He's filled with anxiety and fear. There's a sense of foreboding, of dread. He's dragging his feet. He's terrified. He feels alone. And, and notice we don't begin even with a collective group of the singing of the, the festival, of the pilgrims making their way, but the individual isolated cry of, Out of the depths, O Lord, to you I cry. He's a castaway. He's isolated. He's on a remote island by himself. Even among all of the groups, uh, the group of the people traveling to the temple, he is desperately alone and by himself, descending under the billows. That's the first thing the psalmist shows us. He shows us that he's drowning. And why is he drowning? What weight hangs heavy on his heart? Spurgeon calls this man the beggar under the billows. And boys and girls, the billows are the high and tall waves of the ocean that almost seem as they, they, they roll as they rise and fall. And remember, that was the cry of Jonah in his distress, that you cast me deep into the heart of the sea, and the floodwaters surrounded me, and your waves and your breakers and your billows passed over me. I am driven from your sight, and the deep surrounds me. That's the feeling, the experience of the psalmist. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Psalm 130 has held a strong grip on the church uh, throughout her history because it expresses the experience of a believer who who goes through such a powerful feeling of remoteness, uh, remoteness and distance from God. A profound feeling. In fact, that's often what the psalm is called. De profundis. Out of the profound. Out of the depths. A soul that is disturbed and disquieted. Unable to be at peace. It puts the words, the feeling, when a believer enters the dark night of the soul. As one pastor puts it, when God leaves us on voicemail and doesn't seem to pick up. And perhaps you know this was a favorite psalm of Martin Luther, so much so that he called it a Pauline psalm. He would often sing it when he was in a dark night of the soul. He would gather his friends and say, come, let us defy the devil and sing that that old psalm out of the depths. It was the psalm that was played at his funeral as his casket was made its way through Wittenberg, Germany. And those who saw it pass by sang out together, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Psalm 130 has a powerful grip on believers because it is painfully honest. 
He gives us a realistic picture of our own Christian experience. What it feels like when our own soul is down in the dumps, as we say, and there's no way out, and we cry, cry out to God, and, Oh Lord, hear my voice. No way out and no way up. And see, the psalmist isn't even asking that his words be heard, but, but that God would just hear his voice. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Hear my crying. Hear the inflection in my voice. Hear the sound of my pain. The pleading, the begging, the sorrow. Just hear my voice. And yet he's not even sure that his voice has the strength to travel to the ears of God. He cries out, bend your ear, incline your ear, listen hard for it, be, be attentive to the, to the sound of my voice. And there are many reasons we could descend into such a, a dark night of the soul. It could be for some trial that God sends our way or sorrow that he sends our way. Uh, when, when no one seems to understand us or could understand us the pain that we're going through. It could be the fear that grips us, perhaps betrayal or loneliness or loss, and we become isolated, left out, and forgotten. And truly in those moments, we cry out to God that he would hear our voice. We cry out in the plaintive cry. Uh, but for this believer, the heaviness that hangs on his heart is, is self-induced. It's inward reflection of personal sin. As the pilgrims made their way to the temple, he has this dreadful realization that, that he doesn't belong there, that he's foul, that he's dirty, that he's broken, and it crushes his soul. I wonder if you've ever felt that sense of fear and dread to coming to church for, for that reason. It almost seems ironic to our, our biblical senses. We know that we should be at church when we, we have such a heavy heart of sin upon, our, a sin upon our hearts, a heavy weight of sin, yet we just can't seem to pick up our feet and go. I don't belong. I'm the castaway. I can't meet with God, not while I'm in the depths. It's a sort of a spiritual slump and depression that in the end I'm going to get exactly what I deserve. And the psalmist feels that way. Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? Psalm 24. And he looks inward and says, not me. If God has seen everything I've done, if it's put before him, if it's marked, how could I stand? I don't belong there. And brothers and sisters, neither do we. If God should mark iniquities, we can't stand in his presence either. There's a wonderful scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan also knew something of the dark night of the soul, uh, where after leaving the city of destruction and Christian and all of his journeys, is now finally next to, this, to the celestial city. And he's there with his friend Hopeful, and they're caught up in this large band of pilgrims who are led to this great river that stands before the city. And there's no way around it. There's no way to get past the river without going through the river. And all of the pilgrims begin to despair, asking all sorts of questions. How deep is the water? Does it get shallow? And Hopeful rises and, and goes to the river full of strength, full of faith, and he encourages Christian to come. I can feel the bottom, he says. 
And as soon as Christian enters the waters, he begins to look inward at his life, and he sees all of the sins that he's committed prior to and all of the days after he became a pilgrim. And at one moment he cries out, I sink in the deep waters, the billows go over my head, I'll never make it to the gates. And Hopeful tries to encourage him, saying, look, there's men at the gates, they've come to receive us. And Christian's hopeless reply is, it's for you. It's for you that they wait. But for my sins, he has brought me into the snare and has left me. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And the truth is, we don't even know the half of our iniquities. That we have... Not only sins that we commit, that sins that of commission and omission that we don't even know we committed. We have broken emotions. We get angry at the wrong things. We get happy about the wrong things. We're far worse than we even understand. There was an OPC minister in the 60s and 70s named Jack Miller who taught counseling at uh, Westminster Seminary. He wrote a few books and on the subject, but he was a pastor at heart and he would often have parishioners come and, and seeking for counsel and they would say and, and, and give out all of this, uh, some enormous issue on their heart that they were struggling with or some sin that they were dealing with. And at the end of their story, he would patiently wait for them to finish and, and he would look up at them with a loving smile and, and begin his advice the same way. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. But you're also a lot more loved than you could ever imagine. That's the truth that we enjoy. With you, he says, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What kind of fear? It's a, without, certainly fear without forgiveness. It's a fear of God's righteous judgment. It would be a fear of punishment. Uh, but the, the, the fear that the psalmist is speaking of is a fear that is only experienced out of the depths. More awesome than the depths of his depravity, more awesome than the depths of his own sin is the overwhelming grace that forgives him of all of his sins. He needs to be able to cover his sins. More dreadful than his painful self-reflection is the sweetness of God's gracious promise. That he will not mark his iniquity because with the Lord there is steadfast love. God brings Christians to the bottom that they might look up and wait for him to act. Not themselves, but the Lord himself will act. That's the second picture that the psalm gives us. The, the posture of the psalmist is one that waits upon the Lord to watch and to wait like a watchman waiting for the morning sun. And the, the, the repetition of his watching and hope are uh, reflecting that he has this deep longing that, that the Lord would be faithful. He says, I hope in your word. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. What's he's, he waiting for? He's waiting for assurance, for sunrise, for new mercies, to sing, Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He's waiting for the sign that, that his sins are forgiven, that he can be at peace. And that's the Christian faith. It's a pair of eyes that peers out of the depths, observing, studying, trying to find a horizon to, to rest their eyes, their gaze, to wait for his sunrise. The promise of forgiveness is given, but how will it be accomplished? He's waiting upon his word. In his word, I hope. 
It's faith in the darkness, but it's not a blind faith. It's rested on the word, on the promise, which, like the sun, will not fail to rise. The believer, by the Spirit, is waiting for the light of the world to come. He's waiting for the answer to how how he can stand in God's presence as sinful as he is. The Apostle Peter says in his first epistle that the Old Testament believers, the prophets inquired, they searched, they longed, they waited to see this grace appear. And, and here the psalmist is, puts himself into that same company of Old Testament believers who are, are diligently watching. He compares himself to a watchman who stays awake through the long hours of the night and his eyes are peeled waiting for daylight so he can go home. So he can be reminded of his safety, of his security. So he, he, he no longer needs to fear the darkness. That he can close his eyes in peace. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Perhaps the psalmist has here in mind the watchman of Psalm 127 who keeps watch over the city, who stays awake to warn of any impending danger from the outside, to ring the alarm bells if there were sudden attacks while The city slept in peace. And when the sun rises, he is released from his duty. He can go home to his family. Uh, But there was also another kind of watchman, the the kind that God stationed uh, the Levites who would watch in camps around the temple. They were charged in the morning hours to open the temple, to, to sing praises, to offer the morning sacrifice. And when the morning sacrifice happened, they would, they would, they were led by, uh, they led the choir of singing songs of thanksgiving and songs of praise. That's one of the reasons I had us open our worship singing when morning gilds the skies. My heart awaking cries, may Jesus Christ be praised. Our worship begins with that praise. A psalmist longs for this promised grace, for this assurance that our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. It will be the breaking of a a new day where he himself can boldly join the rest of the worship, where his heart would be made glad he could enjoy fellowship with God in the forgiveness of sins on account of the sacrifice. Because in the sacrifice, he would have the assurance that he is justified. Like the tax collector in Luke 18 who stood far off from the temple, he couldn't even look to the heavens but simply beat his breast And prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, that man went to his home justified because his faith reached from out of the depths and grabbed hold of the promise. And that's where he put his trust. Not like the Pharisee who put his trust in himself. The tax collector waited upon the Lord and in his word he hoped, like a watchman waiting for the morning. The psalm, in many ways, captures the heart of the Reformation by faith alone and Christ alone. That's how we're justified. That's what we bank on. That's what we trust in. On this basis, Martin Luther wrote that, that justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. From Psalm 130. Either we're standing upon the promise in the trusting in his word or we're falling, he said. And that's how we escape out of the depths. We wait upon the faithful promise of God, that that God spoke his promise and he guarantees that he will fulfill it by himself and for himself. It's not that we climb out of the depths, but that Christ climbs in the depths with us. He takes our place. 
That's what a sacrifice does. It's substitutionary. It's not him. It's him for me. As Jesus voluntarily of his own accord lays down his life as the ransom, as he says. Paul says in Colossians that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Christ made us alive. That upon the cross he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. He says in verse 7, With him there is plentiful, full redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Everything that would prohibit you from entering God's presence is covered in the blood of the sacrifice. You have access to the throne of grace. Part of the longing is not only hearing the words that you are forgiven, but, but the psalmist also longs that he would experience, on the experiential level, the feeling uh, deep in our souls that we're at peace. That's why the psalmist compares himself to the watchman. He wants to know the experience, the release of his soul from a slow and agonizing watch through the night, for day to break, for calm to be restored, and the joy of morning to come. That's what we find at the cross of Christ, where even the gloomy soul can know the sunrise, can see the sunrise of God's face, to be under his blessing, to have peace with God. And isn't that why we've come here this morning, the church? There's only one way to come to church. I know it isn't the roads we drive on or the car that we take. The only way to get to church is from out of the depths of seeing uh, correctly that if God were to mark iniquities, I'm not allowed. I don't belong. I'm a castaway. But seeing further, it's still even more correctly that with him there is forgiveness that he might be feared, that he might be reverently worshipped. That's the church community. People who, under every other circumstance, uh, shouldn't be here, permitted to come. But for the sake of Christ, eagerly invited into enter his courts with thankfulness, with gladness. The church community is a festal community. People called out of darkness into marvelous light. Redeemed people who are rejoicing people. But the psalmist finally sees of himself. What a wonderful way in which the psalm concludes in verses 7 through 8. If you follow the movement of the psalm, the psalmist opens with this desperate, dark cry, loneliness, despair, a song of dissents. He, he feels isolated and cut off, not only from God, but from everyone else. In a crowded room by himself, under, under a burden of sin. But once the sun rises, once he experiences the grace of God, he realizes that according to God's steadfast love, he will redeem him. That there's plentiful redemption from all of his sins. But it's not just a redemption for him, so he can go, at home, go home and be at peace. But for all of Israel, for all of the church... He has a place within the community, rejoined with the rest as they make their way to the temple. And all of them together can rejoice in the same thing, the redemption of God. That's what we do as a church community. It rejoices together in the same common denominator of redemption. Justification means that I'm coming to church dressed in someone else's clothes. 
Not my Sunday best. I'm too dirty. I, I just came from the depths, just as you have. I'm not uh, the, the only one. In fact, there's a, a, a temple built of this kind of people who have come from that place. And all of us in Christ have the same standing before God. None better, none worse. New creatures, Paul says, who have gathered to rejoice in their shared redemption. And that's what the psalmist celebrates. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. A calling to the entire church to join in this great longing for his steadfast love. For with the Lord is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Redemption carries with it the picture not only of the payment for sins committed against him, which he freely pardons, but also the picture of release of a prisoner from his shackles. Just as God redeemed Israel from captivity with a mighty and outstretched arm, he released the captives and led captivity in triumph and triumphal procession on dry ground out of the depths. And how much more in Christ, it's as if the psalmist is saying, here's what God did for me, and he can do that for you. He heard my cry. Look at the cross. It's sufficient for you as well. A price is paid in full. It's a full redemption from sins and from all of sin's power and the brokenness of life. He will free us from all of life's sorrows. Because with the Lord of steadfast love, his promise is good and true and trustworthy. And that's the reason for joy and celebration. When the Israelites were released from Babylonian captivity, Psalm 126 says that their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongues with joy. Songs of joy. The redeemed community is a rejoicing community. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, has a, a chapter in the final part of that book detailing uh, how the cross shapes the Christian church. And the title for the chapter is The Communion, the Community of Celebration. I think that's a very apt title and uh, way to describe the church. And in it, he remarks that the Buddhists enter their temples in silence, the Muslims offer their prayers, but they're mainly prayers of submission, they seldom reach a note of thanksgiving. But by contrast, wherever Christian people are gathered together, it's almost impossible to stop them from singing because it's a community of celebration. A celebration that the Lamb has been slain and and that's the new song of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who took the scroll and opened its seals. You were slain and by your blood ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. The movement of Psalm 130 is for people like you and me. Our our sin would cause us to to view ourselves as castaways, isolated from everyone else in the church. Burdened, lonely, forgotten. Christians with, with nothing to celebrate. Unconnected and unable to be counted among the joyful. But we, like the psalmists, are called to wait on the Lord. To have joy in his promise. Christ is the ultimate singer of this psalm, isn't he? He is the castaway. He is the isolated one, lifted lonely upon a cross. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And no one heard us cry. So that he could say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. From lonely to redeemed community. 
So that truly he says to us, O Israel, O church, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is steadfast love and full redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. By faith, you're a part of that community. Your life has, has merged into this band of pilgrims heading not to the earthly Jerusalem, but to the heavenly Zion, to a kingdom that can never be shaken, to the heavenly city of the living God, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the church, the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to the judge of all, God himself. The assembly of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And in Christ, you boldly stand there too. That's what we're doing this morning. As a redeemed community, we're singing a song of ascent, traveling another week the dusty streets of this world, but with a song of praise upon our lips, that out of the depths I cried, and the Lord has heard my voice. As we'll sing in just a moment, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my sinful state and and has shed his own blood for my soul. What a comfort it is that when we don't feel like we belong at church, when we enter a dark night of the soul, when we feel remote, that other saints have been there too. It's a part of our, our hymn book. How we feel, though, isn't the end of the story, but what God has done for us, that concludes the story. And in Christ, he's caused the sun to rise and the redeemed to be those who rejoice as he has saved us from all of our sins. Amen. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful gift you've given to us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that you have redeemed a people from every tribe and language and tongue, people and nation, that together we would travel uh, together as pilgrims, making our way into your presence, and where you invite us to come to stand in your presence, on account of the finished work of the Lamb. And so may this Lord's Day prove again to be a, a day of rest as we look forward as we look behind where we have been, out of the depths, and now look forward as where we are going into your presence. By faith, we have come this morning to do that and to stand before you, and we pray that you would encourage us. You encourage us in the forgiveness of sins, that we would be a joyful people for your sake. We pray this.